Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we'll be exploring the connection between philosophy and neuroscience with Patricia Churchland. So, I'm faced with a strategic problem here. The very first question I want to ask my guest is probably the one I should save for the end. I'll put it as follows. Is all of this Descartes' fault? Now, it's clear why I should probably wait, right? What is all of this? Who is Descartes? Why is he to blame? In order for that question to pack the punch that I think it has, we have to do a lot of background work. The problem is, what we're going to talk about will only be really meaningful if everyone listening understands the legacy that we're challenging. We're all born and raised in a Cartesian framework, and if I don't explain what that is and why it's so, I won't do justice to our guest's research. So here we go. René Descartes lived in the first half of the 17th century. He made incredible contributions to math and natural science, but he's most famous for his philosophical aphorism, I think, therefore I am. We can doubt anything in our experience, he argued. We can imagine there's no God or that we're living in a dream or even believe that 2 plus 2 equals 27. But we can't doubt that we ourselves exist because the act of doubting requires a doubter. There could be no thought without a thinker. The first proves the second. So I think, therefore, I am. Descartes ends up claiming that the universe is made up of two substances, mind and body. Since our certainty comes from reason, I think, therefore, I am as a logical proposition, after all, we know that the mind exists. And since we can prove that an all-good God wouldn't deceive us, we can also be certain that the physical world is as we experience it. The real problem, Descartes tells us, is figuring out how the two substances interact. This is mind-body dualism, and it's the worldview we're trying to escape. Now I'm fudging some stuff. First off, Descartes actually claimed that there were three substances, not two, because God was neither mind nor body, but that's not important right now. Also, his so-called proof for the existence of God is uh, nonsense, (laughs) so we can put that aside as well. What we can't dismiss is his claim that the mind and body are different, and that they must join somewhere in order to talk to one another. People have believed this bit for a really long time. Have you ever heard someone complain that they wanted to be left for their mind, not their body? Or that athletes aren't very smart because they're focused on brawn rather than brain? Or that a woman has a right to choose abortion because she owns her body? Or that antidepressants are bad because psychoactive drugs change who people really are? These are all Cartesian dualism in action. Each example presumes that our physical and mental selves are somehow different, and each rejects the idea that all the elements of human existence are integrated. They also assume, by the way, that the mind is superior to the body, that it's more representative of who we are, because there's a fine line between mind and the soul. There is another option. Instead of thinking about the brain as different from the mind, Instead of separating the soft clump of physical matter that is protected by our skull from the abstract process that we identify as our thoughts and feelings, maybe we could imagine them as different ways of describing the same thing. A spoon is convex or concave, depending on how we look at it, but it's the same spoon. The moon is far or near relative to where we're measuring it from. 
Maybe brain and mind are each just terms we use when we want to investigate specific aspects of ourselves. Maybe they're just a convenient shorthand we use for analytic purposes. This is where our guest research comes in. Patricia Churchland's career has been focused on explaining how the mental phenomena we are familiar with are neurological processes. She explores our consciousness, moral intuitions, social desires, and free will without belittling either the mental or physical reality. She uses recent insights from evolution and neuroscience to articulate not just what mind is, but where it comes from and why, which leads us back to the strategic problem. Pat and I can't argue Descartes was wrong until we explain the alternative, but we can't articulate the alternative until we hypothesize that Descartes was wrong. It's all connected. We just need to find an entry point. It's a version of what philosophers call the problem of the one and the many. To really know something, you have to know everything. But to know everything, you have to know something first. Maybe this, too, is another metaphor for mind and body. Maybe it's all the same thing and we just need to find somewhere to start. If that's the case, well, we might as well get to it. It's time to challenge Descartes. And now our guest. Patricia Churchland is University of California President's Professor of Philosophy Emerita at the University of California, San Diego, where she has taught since 1984. She's the author of six books, including most recently, Conscience, the Origin of Moral Intuition. Pat, welcome to Why. Oh, thank you, Jack, for having me. It's really a great honor to do this. Uh, I'm really thrilled, and I'm especially thrilled that this is uh, North Dakota. Oh, that's well. I'm not sure we all feel the same way, but we'll take your enthusiasm when we can get it. Um, if, if, <laughs> if you'd like to participate, share your favorite moments from the show and tag us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our handle is at YRadioShow, and you can always email us at askwhyatund.edu and listen to our previous episode for free at yradioshow.org. Uh, Pat, I made a joke about North Dakota, but of course you were in Manitoba for quite a while, right? Yes, uh, my husband and I and our two children, we were there for 14 years. And and I had a great fondness, actually, for Winnipeg. Um, we, uh, we had wonderful friends. We, of course, had the obligatory cottage on, on the lake. And um, in, in many ways, it, those, those years, I remember with a tremendous fondness. For those folks who aren't used to the, uh, the local geography, Winnipeg is the place that we think about when it's 20 below. And my wife and I turn to each other and say, you know, there's a whole country north of here, right? We, had, we had, uh, have a That's colleague right. for years who, in the worst winters, he was a smoker, um, and he would still go out in his sports jacket and just have a smoke. And that's Winnipeg for us. So, yeah. so all right. So yes. the, the yes. question I guess I want to start with is, am I wrong to frame your work as, as, as a response to Descartes? Is that the tradition you're working in, or is that something separate? Well, I suppose you can think of the, the questions that motivated me as going back much, much before Descartes. And they're really the questions that motivated Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. They're questions like this, you know, what is it for me to perceive something? What is it to have self-control? And why do I lose self-control under certain kinds of conditions? What is it that happens when let's say I have too much wine and I can't remember the next day very much of what I did? Why is that? Now, Plato took one direction, and he, like Descartes many centuries later, 
had the view that there is a kind of non-physical soul and that the non-physical soul is the thing that perceives and remembers that feels pain and fear. Whereas Aristotle, who was actually Plato's student, um, Aristotle was a physician, or at least his father was, and he learned a lot in a very practical way. And Aristotle took the view that these are functions of the body. And they may be functions we don't yet understand, but fundamentally they have to do with the way the body is organized. Now, I think as a child, I wondered about these things because, of course, like all kids, you know, I went to church and I was told about my soul. And, 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 and then when I had to go to the dentist and the dentist asked if I wanted to have freezing on my tooth so that I would feel no pain, I thought, well, sure, that would be dandy. So I did that. And, but then I wondered why... Why wouldn't my soul feel pain just because he put some stuff in the area of my tooth? So my mother explained to me that there is a nerve that goes from the tooth up to the brain. Maybe there's a connection in there somewhere, but there's a nerve. And that when the dentist puts in the Novocaine, the nerve can't function. It's like the Novocaine turns off a switch so the signal can no longer go from my tooth to my brain. So it was all a story about my tooth and the brain. It was not a story about the soul. And I think my father, too, was very much of a sort of practical, let's find the mechanisms kind of a person. And, and so it seemed to me that maybe... This is really a story about the nature of the brain, and it's a story that doesn't have room for a special spooky substance. It's all ultimately physical. I, I, I'm struck by the example that you gave uh, early on with the, the drinking wine. And yeah. it feels like, though, the reverse of the dentist example, because of the famous phrase, uh, the, the Greek said it in Greek, but in, in Latin, in vino veritas, right? In wine, there is truth. That something happens <laughs> when you drink wine that, that gives you more uh, permission to act in a certain way. And so... On the one hand, right, the, the, the dentist example blocks the pain from going to the brain, but on the other hand, the wine example allows the soul to reveal aspects that the body hides. Is, are those two versions of the same problem, or are they different sort of ways of thinking about things? Well, I think they're very different, um, but they are connected. So when you drink to excess, let us say, you might think that somehow your real self is coming out. And that's because certain inhibitions are as a result of the way the wine affects your brain, certain inhibitions are released. Your self-control is not as robust when you have had alcohol. And the more alcohol you have, 
the less self-control you have. And ultimately, people who drink to great excess even lose self-control for their bladders. So it isn't necessarily that, you know, you're somehow getting access to the spooky part of the soul when you drink. It's that you're actually changing the brain. And we know this is also true with with other drugs, so that alcohol works a little differently on the brain than does, say, cocaine, which works a little differently from fentanyl or heroin. But these all have their effects precisely as a result of the way they change the nature of the physical brain. So the, you can't, you, you fail to be able to remember, for example, if you drink to excess, you fail to be able to remember what you said that so angered your host. You may fail to remember that you yourself became very angry and hit someone. Uh, why is that? It's not because your soul is doing something special. It's because very specific neurons in very specific parts of the brain called the hippocampus were downregulated by the alcohol. They were not functioning properly. Before we get to the more technical and neurological questions, I'm curious about how your research, especially early on, was affected by the philosoph- or was was received by the philosophical community in particular because philosophers have i don't know for back of a better term a, a bias against the body right we're, we're we're educated to be mental people we're educated to to value our intellect over our brawn um the university despite all the reputations of 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 you know uh, hanky panky between teachers and students the university is is a place that is very very desexualized you're not supposed to think about how people look you're not supposed to help how people dress you're supposed to focus on their mind and 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 this is a long thread within philosophy that, that that the mental, that the intellectual is the primary concern. Uh, Anita Silvers, who recently passed away, unfortunately, uh, was a guest on the show. She talked about the philosophy of disability. Uh-huh. And she talked about mm-hmm. how by a person who had, as a person who was in a scooter, she liked being around philosophers because they didn't pay that much attention to the body. And so I wonder... Does that philosophical tendency to to diminish the physical, did that have an effect on how your work was received and how your advisors and your colleagues directed you to where you go? I don't actually think it was that particularly. I mean, um, I should just say that that when I began to really work in neuroscience and to learn everything I possibly could about the brain, um, I think a number of my colleagues thought I, uh, you know, I was just kind of noodling along and, and I would never amount to anything. And that whatever the brain was, it wasn't interesting. Now, that's very different from talking about the whole body. Um, so, so their, their view was that the brain is not really, it, it, it wasn't really very interesting. Now this, oddly enough, this is not because they believed in spooky stuff. 
It's rather because they thought they could figure out the nature of knowledge, the nature of decision-making, the nature of consciousness, just by talking to each other. And from my perspective, that looked like hot air. And I couldn't see that they were making any progress. Whereas, I'll tell you the experiment that absolutely got me by the throat. Uh, It wasn't really an experiment. It was actually a treatment. But in the 1970s, people were trying to figure out a way whereby they could treat patients who had intractable epilepsy. Now, that means that they would have 40, 50, 100 seizures a day, which essentially prevented them from having any kind of a working or social or normal life. And one thought was that if you could do surgery to separate the two hemispheres of the brain, that at least you would prevent the seizure from If it started in one hemisphere, you would prevent it from transferring to the other. Now, between the two hemispheres, sort of right down the center of the top of your head, if you go straight down from there, there is a kind of sheet of nerves that connects the two hemispheres called the corpus callosum. And so experimentally, with patients' full agreement, the surgeon's cut the corpus callosum, separating the two hemispheres. They did this for several patients, and then they monitored them super carefully. And what they discovered was that one hemisphere could decide something that the other hemisphere did not. So in one famous case, uh, the right hand would pick up the newspaper and the left hand would throw it on the floor. They also found that they could present information to just one hemisphere at a time, and the other hemisphere would know nothing. And the impact on me of these so-called split brain studies was to think, wait, dualists who, like Descartes, thought there was brain stuff and spooky stuff can't possibly be right. Otherwise, you would never have the phenomena that we see in these split brain subjects. And so that was actually what really drove me to go to um, the medical school and to study patients and to dissect brains and so forth. And, And then of course, once I got to the medical school and I saw patients, I saw in Winnipeg, these remarkable people whose psychological states could only be explained in terms of the damage to their brains. And so the game was sort of over for me by then. And then I wanted to do what Aristotle did, except I wanted to do it with with up-to-date science. I wanted to understand what happens when we sleep, what happens when we dream, What happens such that some people become highly addicted to things like alcohol uh, or heroin? So in in, in anticipation, in in, in a few minutes, we'll, we'll take a break. But in anticipation of that, and knowing that you have a particular answer to this question, at what point does the philosophy come in and say, 
you're messing with the idea of mind and free will by focusing on the brain and these connections and all this sort of stuff. You're you're putting at risk or you're challenging this idea that somehow we can make choices. Somehow we are more than the sum of our parts. Not, I'm not looking for the answer yet, because obviously that's a longer conversation. But at what point do you or do your colleagues start to ask that question? Oh, right from the beginning. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think right from the beginning, especially, and you could see this in the split brain studies, what is a decision, a freely made decision, such that one hemisphere makes a decision to read the paper and the other hemisphere says, no, we're not reading the paper. That looks to me like decision-making is done by the brain. It's not done by spooky stuff. You can't split consciousness by splitting spooky stuff. There's no spooky stuff to split. There's just the brain. Now, when I say just the brain, let me take it back a bit. The brain of all mammals, humans, dogs, horses, monkeys, chimpanzees, the brains are unbelievably complex. And I can go into, you know, I could give you sort of numbers and, and things that, that, that will give you a feel for the nature of the complexity of, of the nervous system. So to say that the brain does these things is not to say they're dinky and they're little and they're easy and, and the mechanisms are straightforward. None of that's true perception, motor control, even just being able to walk and hold yourself upright. These are really, really complex functions. And, uh, and nervous systems have evolved to do them. When we get back, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of these questions. We'll ask the larger philosophical questions about consciousness, about free will, about moral development. Um, and we'll also just come face to face with the question, how relevant is empirical research to philosophy? And how do you combine them into this brand new subfield that Pat calls neurophilosophy. But that's after the break. You're listening to Patricia Churchland and Jack Russell Weinstein on why philosophical discussions about everyday life. We'll be back right after this. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower.
You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions in Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. I'm talking with Patricia Churchland about neurophilosophy and the relationship between the brain and the mind and, and how cognitive science and new empirical information and how evolution uh, connects to the larger philosophical questions of things like consciousness and free will. And those folks who are regular listeners to the show will uh, know that in the last couple of years, I've, I've started talking a bit more about triathlons. Uh, a few years ago, I started um, doing triathlons uh, in part, and I think I've mentioned this before, as a way to, to contribute to my mental health as well as physical health. I, I went through a bad time. I was on antidepressants, and I discovered that physical activity had the same effect, perhaps even a better effect than the pills that I was being prescribed. And after about a year of doing very intense physical activity, I was able to get off the, the pills, which is not the right decision for everybody, but was the right decision for me. And now I know that when I'm feeling down, if I go for a jog or I go for a bike ride or swim, I have more energy, I have more enthusiasm, and it just makes it easier for me to get through my life. And so the question that comes up, Pat, that I want to ask in relation to that is, first of all, what's going on there, not in the sense of, of, of the brute chemical reactions, but when we look at the chemicals that are released from exercise and other such things, is that an explanation or is that, for lack of a better term, a justification? And what I mean by that is, okay, we can talk about the neurology and how things change, but my experience of it is so much prof more profound and more intimate. The explanation of the chemical releases, that doesn't feel like it's telling the whole story. So how do we get from the material account to the story of the experience and the meaning of it all? Well, I think it's complicated, and I think for for many things, we can't tell the whole story. I'm sure that in doing your triathlon work, one of the things that's happening is that the endogenous opioids that your body, that your brain makes, those opioids are almost certainly released into, uh, into your brain, and that's part of the reason that you feel good. Uh, another thing that almost certainly happens is that oxytocin is released during exercise. And oxytocin acts in opposition to stress so that when um, oxytocin levels in the brain go up, then your cortisol levels go down and you feel less anxiety, you feel less stress. Now, those are just two things, but of course, bear in mind that there are many hundreds of neurochemicals that play an important role in your body, uh, in your brain, and also that you have upwards of 86 billion neurons uh, in your head. And so, you know, there's a, there is a lot of complexity. But, you know, I'll tell you a story that had a really big impact on how I thought about this. And it, it's not the whole story of a behavior, but it's a, a big part. So it turns out there are many species of voles. And uh, 
Montane voles, as you might imagine, live in the mountains and they build their nests amongst rocks and so forth. And a male and a female montane vole will meet, they'll mate, and then they carry on their separate ways. A different species of vole behaves differently. They look very similar, but they're different. The male and the female meet, they mate, and then they're bonded for life. Now, what does that mean exactly? It means that most of their sexual action takes place between them, that the male guards the nest against other males, but also against other females. He helps take care of the babies, and basically they like to spend a lot of time with each other. Moreover, if you take one of them and separate it from the, the bonded mate, then they both become quite depressed in the sense that uh, they don't eat very well. If you put them in a bucket of water, they kind of splash around. They don't really try hard to get out. But when you put them back together, they're thrilled. They, they behave in a wonderful way and they, uh, they lick each other and so forth. Now, what's the difference in the brains between these two species? It turns out that the important difference for this difference in behavior is in an old part of the brain, and it's in uh, part of the reward system. Then it's in the nucleus accumbens. So, and the difference has to do with this wonderful but ancient neurochemical called oxytocin. And in the prairie vole, the ones that mate for life, it turns out when you look at the nucleus accumbens and you look at the number of receptors on neuron oxytocin, there's this great density. Not so in montane voles. Well, you say, okay, that's just a correlation. And you're right, it is just a correlation. So here's what you do. You take a pair of uh, voles, that, prairie voles that have never mated, and you give them a drug that blocks the receptors for oxytocin. Now they meet, they mate, they don't bond. It's critical for them to bond that uh, they have oxytocin and that the oxytocin binds to the receptors. Now, that's only part of the story, of course. It, it doesn't tell us the whole mechanism. But what it does is it reminds us something that is as deeply important to us as the affiliations and affection we feel for others, our spouse, our friends, our parents, is mediated in the brain by neurochemicals, and in particular, by oxytocin. Now, it doesn't really matter that when you read about oxytocin and, and the reward system that, you know, you feel like, well, gee, the love I feel for, for my baby or the love I feel for my spouse doesn't, I mean, doesn't look like it's just got to do with oxytocin. Yeah, 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 okay. But how things look is not necessarily how things are. And just as it doesn't look like our planet is speeding around the sun at a tremendous velocity, it actually is. So 
So you wouldn't expect a neurobiological explanation to somehow generate the feeling. <laughs> but uh, it looks like we are really beginning to understand something about the role of oxytocin in not just mate bonding, but in bonding between parents and offspring. So I, I, I want to point out what's going on here because it's super interesting and leads to a whole bunch of questions, right? Aristotle famously uh, begins um, the metaphysics by arguing that, 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 that humans are the, the political animal. And there's this whole tradition in philosophy that says human beings are social, <laughs> that we're, 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 we're group creatures. And then there's a, a follow-up mm -hmm. conversation that asks about the possibility of altruism and things like that. And what, what you're doing is you're offering the same claim, but in a different uh, in different terminology, in a different language, and, 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 and with different evidence, right? What you're arguing with the oxytocin is that, you know, ultimately humans, but, but voles here, are social creatures. And that when Aristotle says in philosophy speak, mm -hmm. uh, human beings are the political animal, in neuroscience speak, it's being with one another uh, involves the release of oxytocin, and there are all of these other processes that affect our neurology so that when we're apart, we have these same, we have these complexities. And so what really yeah. interests me, um, and I think what, what, what the, uh, the, our listeners are going to find compelling, is the way that the neuroscience offers these neurological, these evolutionary, these uh, scientific and empirical explanations of the great philosophical claims. Well, yeah, I kind of think that, that, that at least the explanation need not be complete for it to be really quite gripping. That is, we can see that it's the beginning of a really complex story. And you're right, of course, that there is this long, long tradition in the East and in the West of appreciating that humans are intensely social. But of course, we're not the only intensely social species. Uh, and I mean, think about wolves and the fact that wolves and, and Homo sapiens clearly made connections at least 15 to 20,000 years ago. And now our dogs are, are, are a really important part of our, our social lives, and they are intensely social. And there's evolutionary reasons, of course, for why wolves are, in particular, why wolves are so social. And uh, I mean, it has to do with how, how they make their living and the fact that they need to cooperate. And in order to cooperate, they need to be able to understand what the others are about to do and predict what they're going to do next. They need to be able to vocalize in order to call the pack together so they can cooperate on a hunt. And... Um, and yeah, that's probably pretty similar to many of the ecological conditions that shaped our brains. And, and, and then you, you do something in the book, which is in, in the most recent book, uh, Conscience, that is, that is super interesting, because you, you go from this social aspect to this discussion of, of, of altruism. And, and you say that what happens cognitively is that there's an evolutionary shift where the, the mother begins to, to, to 
look at the babies as mm. part of herself, that the self expands because, and of course you'll be able to explain it better than me, but because the babies are, are, are often helpless and, and have to be cared for, and that once the the mother starts thinking of the babies as part of herself, it opens the door for what philosophers, again, have called altruism, which is caring about other people for their own good. Is is that a fair account yeah. of, 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 of how you describe it? Yes, except, you know, um, I... I really feel compelled to put it into a broader context. And the context is this, that about 200 million years ago, warm-blooded creatures appeared on the face of the planet. Being warm-blooded was a huge advantage because you could forage at night. And in fact, you could forage on insects that couldn't really move much because they had to wait for the sun to come up. Now, it turns out that while it is advantageous to be warm-blooded, there is a cost. And the cost is really interesting. It's that gram for gram, a warm-blooded creature has to eat 10 times as much. You can leave your lizard uh, for a week if you go off on vacation, and it'll be fine. It'll you know, come back and you can give it something, it'll be fine. You can't do that with a cat or a dog, it would starve. So, so to meet this cost, what evolved was a structure that only mammals and birds have, and that's the cortex. And the cortex is about uh, a few millimeters thick, and it sits on the outside of the brain, and it's kind of like a general computer that makes the old ancient parts of the brain really smart. So the old parts and the new parts work together, and it means that you can be super flexible. You can learn like the Dickens. Ah, wait, if you're going to learn, that means the brain has to build structure. Ah, that's what learning is, is building bits and pieces onto your neurons. Well, if you're going to build bits and pieces, you're either going to have to start knowing a whole lot or you're going to have to start with a very immature brain. And that is what happened with mammals and birds. I mean, it's very notable that a turtle comes out of its egg and, and can walk and go down to the uh, water and find food. Mammals can't do that. Bir baby birds can't do that. They have to be cared for. So what happened really in both mammals and birds, first mammals and later birds, was that the wiring changed in the brain. The wiring that makes us see to our own food and warmth and safety expanded to care for the helpless offspring as though it were an extension of ourselves. So just as I care for my own food and warmth and safety, I will do almost anything to protect and feed this infant. And the impulse, of course, is powerful in all females, all female in females of all species of mammals and birds. It can be turned off and it can be disrupted. But under normal circumstances, it's very powerful. And that is an oxytocin story. So the very first kind of affiliation and bonding 
in our evolutionary history, the evolutionary history of mammals is about parents and offspring. And then it can shift to mates or it can shift to friends or it can shift in all kinds of different ways depending on how the evolution of a species goes. Where, and and, and it may be too soon to ask this question, but where does meaning fit in? And, 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 and what I mean by that is that there are, there are going to be a lot of people who are attached to, to um, the moral value of human life, the moral value of mm-hmm. uh, pa- par- parent-child relations, of friendship, and all these sorts of things, uh, independent of whether they come from a religious tradition or not, or humanist tradition. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. And they're going to hear some of this and say, you're reducing us to determinist creatures, you're reducing us to, 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 to machines, and what makes human beings special is, is, is the meaning behind it all. Is that a fair criticism, or is that misunderstanding what's going on, or is meaning just part of the process that we haven't gotten to yet? <laughs> I think meaning is the part that we haven't got to yet, but you know, I don't think of us as mere machines. I mean, you know, you have all seen the glories of artificial neural networks and deep learning. And here's what you want to remember, that even an artificial neural net that has about a a million nodes and a million and a half connections and four million uh, synapses and four million weights is in its power about the size of a millimeter of cortex, which is about the size of a grain of rice. Now, your whole cortex is about the size of a great big pizza. And it's kind of folded up so that it can tuck into uh, your your skull. Uh, and it has to do that because we do have to get born. <laughs> um, so, so the brain is not a mere machine. That is, the mammalian brain is not a mere machine. Now, what is kind of a mere machine, but even here we see flexibility, is, say, a tiny worm called C. elegans. It only has 302 neurons. But even with just 302 neurons, it manages to feed, it manages to swim, it it will try to escape from a predator, and it can reproduce. So even with 302 neurons, you can can do pretty well. But you have upwards of 86 billion neurons and a factor of 100 more connections between your neurons. So the complexity is really unfathomable. And it is what makes us have these amazing capacities to to have to play music like the the wonderful flute and bass that we heard at the beginning of the program. I mean that's astonishing. Is is moral life the consequence of 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 just calculations can if if we were able to to develop artificial intelligence that had the complexity uh that the brain had would we be able to put in a moral dilemma 
and get a result. I mean, in, in a certain sense, Kant's categorical imperative, which which is is built on yeah. logical consistency, is actually trying to do this ironically without without the neurology involved. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting question, and <clears throat> my friends who who develop neural nets for various uh, things, of course, are thinking about these kinds of questions, and. My sense is that at the moment, of course, they're so tiny relative to even the brain of a mouse um, that we don't know what scaling up produces. On the other hand, you know, all animals, whether they're vertebrates or invertebrates, all animals have wiring that embodies value, the value of their own survival. And for social animals, like uh, all mammals and birds, we also have the wiring that embodies the value of, the, of others, of those to whom we are attached. So can we make an artificial neural net that values anything, even itself? Well, at the moment, we haven't the slightest idea how to do that. Not the slightest idea. And uh, I mean, I have seen people sort of wave their hands and just say, oh, yes, yes, we'll do it eventually. But, but we don't really have a palpable idea of how to make a, uh, an artificial neural net that cares about its own well-being. You can unplug it. Nobody cares. It doesn't care. <laughs> it doesn't fear that you're going to unplug it. Um, and I'm not sure that that we, I mean, one of the deep things that we don't yet really understand very well uh, are, are the nature of these fundamental values of health and, and warmth and safety and food and how those values are integrated with this notion of self-survival and care about others. It's sort of you know, way off in the science fiction distance for me. But I think it's fun to think about. So, so, so while you're offering that explanation, I, I, I was able to, to articulate in, in my mind the question that I'm, that I'm really trying to ask, which is when you say we value things, we have these values, whether they're self-survival or, or warmth or others, what does that mean? What does it mean to value something in, neuro, in neurophilosophical terms? And then the second sort of part of that question is, is there ever going to be any explanation that you are going to offer that is going to be satisfying to the Thomas Aquinas's, the, 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 the Martin Bubers, the, the, the folks with whom the, the theological traditions necessitate a radical division. So, so first, what does value mean when we're talking about brain activity? And is that explanation only going to be satisfying to someone who already, pardon the term, values the brain activity explanation? <laughs> well, we can say a little bit about the mechanisms of value in what we understand from relatively simple organisms. I mean, it has to do with their having a, being motivated to do certain things. 
Um, they are motivated to see to their own survival and, and they usually will have the neural equipment um, to either flee or to hide or to fight. Uh, and they are motivated to do those things. And what exactly is motivation? Well, it's a complexity that we understand a little bit of in the simple case. But in the case of mammals and birds, there's very much that we cannot yet say, although ultimately uh, I think I think we will be. And so that's what I mean by that's what I mean by value. So you can see in the little worm, see elegans that it values food because it's motivated to search for food. And if it's in a patch where there's very little food, it'll wander around and try to find a patch where there's plentiful food and food for the C. elegans is bacteria. And uh, if it finds a patch where the, there's plentiful bacteria, yum, yum, it settles right down and munches along. Uh, so, so I think the easiest way to understand it is, is in terms of motivation. Now, probably C. elegans doesn't have much in the way of feelings, if anything, but for mammals and birds, almost certainly when we value something, we have these powerful feelings, uh, that accompany our, our motivations, uh, we fear when when uh, uh, those to whom we are bonded are attacked or are uh, are hurt in some way. So um, that's about the best the best we can do at this time. Now I haven't said anything about about theology, um, but maybe you want me to stop for a, a, a moment while while you <laughs> rephrase that question, um, or I am happy to carry um, on. I, I'll... I'm going to put, I, I am going to ask a question, but I'm going to put it off uh, for, for another minute because something else occurred to me, which is <laughs> Bertrand Russell in his little book, The Problems of Philosophy, which is both a wonderful, wonderful oh, book, yes. but also a, pro of, yes, a product yes, of his yes, time yes. and a great introduction yeah. to philosophy as it was understood at the time. He argues in the very beginning that, um, that when we don't know an answer, we call it philosophy. And when we do know an answer, we call it biology or chemistry or, or, or some other things. Do, do you think that, that that's what's going on here, that the reason why this is still philosophy is precisely because we don't have enough information to know what value means and we can sort of talk about it as motivation, but it's not the whole story? Or even if we get the whole story, there's still going to be a place for philosophy because Russell's not really right. And it's not about, you know, how much information we have. It's really about the kind of questions that we're asking. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think in the case of morality, um, what we've talked about so far are really the sort of moral instincts uh, we're talking about the wiring that we have when we're born as a result of the way our genes are. But of course, there's another two components to the story. Um, one of which we know a little bit about and very little about the last. But the one we know something about is, is how children learn to navigate their social world. 
um, or how dogs, for example, learn to navigate their social worlds. And there's a lot of learning involved. And they learn, for example, by trial and error. They learn by being rewarded for certain things and being sort of, you know, unrewarded or punished for, for other things. And they learn by imitation. And in the case of humans, we also learn by being sung to and being told stories or gossiping or overhearing our parents talk and so forth. So there's a tremendous amount of social learning that goes on in those first five years. A lot that goes on after that, too. But those first five years are just the, the child is learning about how to be a social animal in its group. Now, the third component of all this is that as ecological conditions change, maybe as a result of new methods of, of uh, making a living with the advent of agriculture, for example, that norms change. And so new problems that people didn't have, let's say 200,000 years ago, then with the dawn of agriculture about 10,000 years ago, they had these problems because now they were living in very large communities. And not everybody knew each other very well. And hierarchies seemed to develop. And there were rules about things that you could pass on to your offspring, which is not something that hunter-gatherers typically did much of. And so how those kinds of decisions are made... I think is is really super complex. And it's probably not just a neurobiological story, but also depends on how individuals interact within the group. Uh, some individuals will take power and be cruel to others and so on and so forth. So, so it may be that the um, philosophical questions of, of a really difficult kind will always remain. Let me give you an example. So I was reading about the end of the war, the Second World War, and the, the Allied powers in Germany, and to, for them to try to decide what they should do about the upper echelons of the military. And the question was, should you just let the vigilantes take care of them and hang them like they did with Mussolini in Italy? Should you have a trial of a lot of people? Or should you just say, you know, war happens, it's a bad thing, let's just uh, put it behind us and try to carry on? That's a really, really deep, important difficult question. It's a moral question, but it's also full of practical aspects. And as Aristotle would pipe up and say at this point, all interesting moral problems have practical aspects. And I don't think philosophers are particularly good at answering those questions, quite honestly, because most of them live such a sheltered life. They don't respect the importance of practical considerations. They think, well, you should just have a rule and follow the rule. Um, and so I get kind of frustrated with moral philosophers who think that without knowing anything about the details 
of a circumstance in which the moral dilemma arose that they can pronounce upon it. Mostly, I think they just waste everybody's time. You, you, you mentioned in the book that the brain is not conducive to this sort of rule-following notion of morality, that there's the, the, the categorical imperative, there's the principle of utility, there's these, 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 these other things, and that, that, that that's not how the brain works. But rather, the brain develops what you call cognitive patterns, that, that, that it can it move from one context to the other. I'm still putting off the theological question, but I will ask that. Um, uh, could, <laughs> could, could you follow up a little bit on on this this response to the, your skepticism about rule following and what you mean by cognitive patterns and how it's and how it's a more um, applicable way of thinking about reasoning and rationality? Well, I think there can be uh, there can be rules, but uh, they, they are sort of rules of thumb, so to speak, and uh, that what children learn as they are in a social context um, of family and friends and school and so forth, what they learn are from particular examples how things turned out. And then they look for similarities between this example and the, the, the current situation. And so they, um, they, they look for similarities so that they can apply what they experienced to the case at hand. And we all do that all the time. Um, that is a really fundamental, uh, important part of how, how learning in, in mammals, all mammals works. Now, there can, of course, be, be rules as well, but children learn quite quickly that sometimes uh, when you're told that a certain rule has to be followed and has to be followed always, that their parents don't really adhere to it themselves. They don't really mean it. That, uh, no, you can't always tell the truth. There are certain circumstances, rare though they may be, but there are some where you have to tell a lie. So when the, uh, when the mad rapist comes to the orphanage door and says, do you have any girl orphans here? I, as the mistress of the orphanage, I'm going to lie. I'm going to say, no, 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 there's just chickens here. Uh, and it would be uh, idiotic to not lie under, under those sorts of circumstances. Kids pick that up very quickly. They know that circumstances are relevant, that sometimes when you can't figure out what to do, you'll fall back on a rule because you've got to make a decision and move on. But uh, I think kids are, kids' brains, their social brains are designed to be highly adaptive and to learn the complexity of social life. And as I'm sure you know, there's so many aspects of, of a moral dilemma or a social problem that often we can't even articulate very well. And yet our brains seem to kind of, you know, have a sense of the gist of, of where we ought to go with that. So it's not exactly that, that I think rules are cognitively uh, difficult for, for people. 
but that in particular Kant's idea that once you have a moral rule, there must be no exceptions is, is kind of, well, actually it strikes me as immoral. Um, I mean, there are Kantian philosophers who have tried to defend the idea that you must tell the truth no matter what, but you know, the, the, the stories are always very, um, shall we say unconvincing. It's 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 very hard. It's very hard to justify it's very Kant to, us, to people who are not already uh, drinking the Kool Aid, so to speak. Yeah, and why those people are already convinced? Uh, it's like, well, I've always been a Kantian. Well, maybe you should think about it. And, and, and this actually, <laughs> I don't know. I don't and this know. actually touches on on something <laughs> you 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 ask in the book, which you don't come up with a definitive answer for, but it's really interesting. You ask whether or not cognitively there are natural rule breakers or whether there are people who oh, are more yeah, traditional yeah. and and part of what you're asking is yeah, yeah. is there a neurological component to being a liberal or a conservative why do you ask that question and how far can you get with that question i don't think you can get hugely far but it turned out that there are experimental data that are very, very carefully garnered that show us that the sort of natural born rule breakers can be neurobiologically somewhat different. Now, uh, it's a bit of a long story to, to tell you the background. And I have to tell you the background because I want you to see that the data are not just, you know, something that somebody dreamed up, but they're quite careful. So the origin of this story is with a psychologist, sociologist, political scientist, I guess, called John Hibbing from the University of Nebraska. And Hibbing had long been interested in the question of temperament and whether um, temperament seems to be something that you kind of have for life. I mean, there can be periods where, you know, you change a little bit in one direction or another, but basically introverts are pretty much introverted most of their lives and extroverts vice the other way. So Hibbing did a few experiments and he noticed that there were certain people who tended, when you showed them a picture of something ghastly, who tended to instantly focus on it and to look at it for a long period of time. And that other people kind of, yeah, they focused on it and then they moved on. So Hibbing wondered, that's just behavioral. Are there brain differences here? Now, to find out that the answer to that question, you first of all need to have uh, some sort of questionnaire or assay to determine how people feel about very traditional values having to do with, uh, say, the role of males, the, the importance of the church, um, the importance of strictness of punishment, um, of mercy versus punishment, and so forth. And over the last three or four decades, several of these assays for determining whether you're very much uh, in the traditional side or very much in the, in the law-breaking side, or not really law-breaking, but let's say progressive side, Several of these assays have been produced and tested and tested and tested. So 
So Hibbing then thought, well, look, we can we can find out using these assays whether somebody is highly traditional or highly progressive. Why? What can we do to find out something about the brain? So we went to Reed Montague, who's a brilliant neuroscientist at Virginia Tech, and they ran the following experiment. They had a large population of subjects. I think it was 183. And they had a series of pictures that each subject would see. And the pictures could be neutral. It could be very pleasant. They could be very disgusting. Or they could be just threatening. And so what they would do would be to each individual, one by one, goes into the functional uh, magnetic resonance imaging scanner. And while they're in the scanner, they are shown pictures and the activity of their brains are recorded. And then after they come out, they are asked about the pictures. You know, did you like this? Did you, how did you rate that? Da, da, da. And then finally, they're given John Hibbing's assay on where they stand. Are they tr very traditional, very progressive, or somewhere in between? So, all right, that's the background. Okay, what's the result? The result is that people who scored very high on the traditionalist end had a configuration of brain activity that was very different from those who scored low. And it was the same across all individuals who scored high on the traditional end. And it was always to a subset of the pictures. Which ones? The disgusting ones. Which brain structures? Well, it was about four or five cortical structures and subcortical structures that, you know, nobody's ever identified as, you know, the political... <laughs> the political brain, they were just, there they were. So, so the question then was, um, is it, if it's always too disgusting pictures and it's always uh, the, that the traditionalist's brain shows more activity than the progressive brain to these disgusting uh, pictures, do the, the people themselves, when asked about the pictures, do they find them uh, super disgusting? And here, this just blew my mind. I mean, I, you know, I think my introspection is good sometimes and not very good <laughs> other times. You know, we don't have perfect self-knowledge. But it turned out that people were just at chance. Those who had essentially no brain activity that was distinctive for the disgusting picture said, oh yeah, that was really, really disgusting. I thought I was gonna throw up. And those who had a lot of activity, the traditionalists said, didn't bother me. And then there was everything in between. So, so the, the take home message is that our assuming that this has something to do with our temperament, our temperament to be worried about or anxious about uh, things that potentially are harmful. Maybe that's a feature of temperament that also plays into our, our political attitudes. I don't think people should make too much of it, um, but it is an interesting result.
there is a whole bunch of stuff that if we had more time, I would really want to uh, unpack. And and, and yeah. for folks who are interested, right. it's you can read about it in, in the book Conscience, The Origin. But I, I, I want to conclude, because we need to wrap up soon, with the question that I've been sort of putting off. And, <laughs> and I actually want to frame it just slightly differently, um, because when you were talking about child development. You were talking about first children getting rewards for proper behavior and that the, this re, this reward activity helps develop the, the moral identity. But then also there was role modeling that kids had to look at role models. There was singing and, 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 uh, and, and learning from songs. Yeah. And what struck me while you were talking about is that it sounds so Catholic, right? It sounds, you know, there's, there's, yeah. Yeah. The reward of there's 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 the promise of divine reward. There's the saints who um, who are the role models. There's the hymns and all of that sure. stuff that that you use in in uh, in worship to, to to help direct you towards the the moral answer. And so, analogously, there's a lot going on. Yet there are so many people who would hear the kind of explanations that you're offering and just feel like it's two different universes. So that's why I asked, and I'll ask again, do you think that there's ever a way to use the, the neurophilosophical explanations for things to, <laughs> pardon the religious term, convert the, uh, the, the, the <laughs> theologically minded, or do you think that these are just incommensurable, incompatible ways of looking at the world. And what we are really looking for is just stories that, 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 that fit the meaning that we've already chosen. Is there something, is there some way to use your way of explaining things to provide similar meaning to folks who are looking towards the more, religious, the more spiritual, the, 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 the more um, uh, theological way of, of thinking about things? Yeah, no, I think it's a really interesting question. And, and there's sort of two things that, you know, come to me when I, I think about this. One is, of course, that Eastern religions may have have a certain amount of spirituality about them. Like, let's consider Confucianism, for example. But, you know, they don't actually have a divine guy. They don't have a divine lawgiver. Um, and, and nor does Buddhism have, have that. And, and they're their spiritualism is is not at all like that of of the, the saints and and the pope and so forth so so and there's quite a lot of confusions in buddhists actually um so i don't know that it's a human necessity let's put it that way on the other hand, it's also true that there is something um, very pleasurable about singing together and dancing together. And it turns out that um, the experiments have been done and they show that when people sing together and dance together, oxytocin is released, they feel good and they... <laughs> 
form very strong affiliations with those people with whom they sing and dance. And of course, hunter-gatherers have been doing that since, since ever. And uh, it probably is a way that they use of bonding to each other. And, and maybe you do get sort of spiritual and high on oxytocin and, and the lowering of cortisol when you're singing and dancing around the campfire and, uh, and maybe it feels just, just wonderful. The other thing that I think about in this context is that people who've tried psilocybin, the magic mushrooms, I've not, not done it because I'm a bit of a coward, but, um, say that they do have, I mean, Michael Pollan in his book talks about this extraordinary sense of oneness with the universe and the great sense of spirituality. It's not that he thought suddenly that, you know, he talked to, to uh, a great uh, divine being, but he did f- have an extraordinary conscious experience, which he tended to call spiritual. So, I don't know what that all is, and maybe someday we'll find out and we'll say, oh, it's a such and such circuitry, and these are the neurochemicals involved. And people will say, go away, we don't want to hear about it. <laughs> I don't know. But that, that's how I tend to think about it. Well, it is it is comforting to know, at least, that uh, my job is safe, that there are still some mysteries left in the world. Um, and <laughs> oh, yes. it's also really fascinating to encounter the way that modern technology and modern science has taken this old Aristotelian insight and really made uh-huh. it as contemporary and as informative as possible. So, Pat... This has been a fabulous conversation and really interesting and so much on the edge of of my own background knowledge. So thank you so much for joining us on Why. Great pleasure for me. Thank you so much, Jack. You have been listening to Patricia Churchland and Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I will be back with a few more thoughts right after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Why Philosophical Discussions of Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We were talking with Patricia Churchland about the brain and the mind and how cognitive science and neurophilosophy connects with the great philosophical questions. And actually, in summing up, I want you to think about the Beatles for a second. You know, the Beatles were four individuals, John, Paul, George, and Ringo. They were, you know, they had producers and engineers and all this kind of stuff, but they were John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And each of them, however much we idolize John Lennon or however much we think about um, Paul McCartney as being a, a, a good artist, none of them ever achieved the greatness that the Beatles ever achieved. Why? 
because they were more than the sum of their parts. There was something magical and special that happened when you took these four individuals and made them the Beatles, as opposed to just John, Paul, George, and Ringo. And that notion that something is more than the sum of its parts flows through the entire conversation we've had. The brain has millions and millions of connections, of neurons, that there's all these chemicals that shoot through it. There's all sorts of stuff that I don't know anything about. But what I do know is that when you put it all together, something magical happens. Or I should say something special happens, rather than magic, that makes the mind more than just the brain. Our experience, our consciousness, our values, our way of understanding, of describing, of communicating the world, our way of feeling the world, is the product of all of this neurological activity. But it's more than the sum of its parts. And so there are those of you, I am sure, who are very resistant to this physicalist description of the world, who don't like the idea that we can reduce emotions to oxytocin, that we can reduce uh, interconnectedness to certain electrical impulses. But looking at the cause of those things and looking at the evolutionary reason for those things doesn't take the meaning and value away because the mind is more than the sum of the parts of the brain, just like we are more than our limbs and our eyes and our noses connected. What it means to be Jack, what it means to be Pat, what it means to be Bill, Sally, Muhammad, whomever, is more than just the individual pieces. As we think about consciousness, as we think about neurology, as we think about neurophilosophy, as technology increases, remember that the meaning and the value may come from this stuff, but it is much more, and that's where the great philosophical questions begin. You've been listening to Jack Russell Weinstein on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. Thank you for listening. As always, it's an honor to be with you. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, and the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences and Division of Research and Economic Development. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. The music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Louis E. Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzflutweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we've inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs>